0: Yeah right. First John. Um, I don't even have a Greek text, so I had to borrow Pastor Nelson's. But I think this has all the answers in it, so that'll be good. Um, I asked him before he gave it to me if it Marcus Nelson CTS with a little picture of Jesus in the front. Look at that! <laughs> no, it's he's it's, it's a sticker. See, while while I was taking upper level courses, he was taking classes with stickers. That's what happened. I know this. Guy, I'm kidding. Actually, Pastor Nelson knows his Greek text better than I do. So, um, First John, I was a little surprised to hear you completely switch subjects. Um, I guess mine wasn't that interesting, which is fine. Uh, yeah. Well, we're gonna keep going with First John now. Um, Hold on, I got to find it here. First, second, third John. Um, so yeah, let's carry on. This is actually a very helpful discussion. Um, from what I gather, and I didn't, like I said, I mean, I don't, I have nothing in my office right now but um, a computer and two books on Calvin's Institutes and uh, my oh. New Testament. What's that? I said I They're not helpful for this. I can tell you that. <laughs> They're helpful for other things, but not for this. So, uh, what's that? And my stereo. That's The vicar hasn't taken that out yet. Um, so, I don't have anything. I can't even give you a handout because my computer's not hooked up to the printer anymore. Uh, so, let's just start at 1 John. I know you guys did, I think, verses 1 to 7. There was some scribble on a little sheet from Pastor Brusick that said you got through verse 7. Let's just read 1 to 7, and then we'll carry on, Okay. Uh, and when we get through 7, tell me if you got any questions, because I don't really know what you talked about before, but we'll see. That which was from the beginning, now let me just, well, let me say this. Um, 1 John was written by whom? John, yeah, Yeah. the Apostle John. So the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John and wrote uh, the Apocalypse of John, Revelation, also wrote 1 John. The great thing about the Gospel of John and all of John's writing is in the Greek, it's very, very easy. Um, and in fact, he's probably while he is. What's the image for Saint John? Do you know of all the evangelists? What's his image? What's the image for Saint John? The eagle. Yeah, Saint John, eagles. Right. I mean, come on. Why was Saint Why was Saint John called the eagle? Do you know? He soared how intellectually above the other three evangelists. That was always the thought. Was Saint John was the smartest. Now, you wouldn't notice that uh, from his Greek, because his Greek is very easy. In fact, he begins uh, 1 John with the same language that he uses in the Gospel of John. How does he begin John 1.1? In the beginning was the word, arke, en arke logos. In the beginning was the word. And here it says, that which was from the beginning. Ha en ap arkeis. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life now that's very interesting we've heard it we've seen it we've looked at it we've touched it okay concerning the word of life the logos the logos is the word for the word the logos of life we've seen it we've heard it we've touched it now that's fascinating the life which was made manifest that means it's tangible and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We have proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father. So already eternal life has sort of, um, um, boy, I'm still on Scotland time. I feel like it's time <laughs> to go to bed. Um, there's a personification to eternal life. It's a person. Who is eternal life here in First John? Christ, yes. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The word there for fellowship is koinonia, communion. It's the same word that St. Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, Is not the bread that we break a koinonia in the body of Christ? Is not the, 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 uh, the wine that we drink. The wine that we bless, a koinonia in the blood of Christ. So what Saint John is saying is, now this is this is fascinating. If you have, Vic, do we have any markers? If you have, you have koinonia with whom? Does it say Uh, before that? Look, with us. Who's the us? Yeah, with the apostles. Then what does it say? If you have fellowship with us, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So if you have fellowship with the apostles, therefore you have koinonia with Christ and his Father. And you know if those two are doing something, who else is there with them? And the Spirit. Okay, You have fellowship, koinonia, communion, with the apostles and therefore with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, koinonia is a very interesting word. Um, when you think of fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Trinity. The Trinity, yeah. The Trinity. Good, so there's a back and forthness, that's right, keep going. Yes, good. Good. So, yes, yeah, so you have all these things. So you have, it begins at a table. And you know in the church, the table is body and blood. And that leads to um, uh, uh, to a back and forthness, which is, as Rebecca said, the technical word is perichoresis, which is um, sort of colloquially, it means To dance. (laughs) What's that? Um, Yeah. What does parakarisis mean non-colloquially? It means dance. Dance means well. What do you know about dancing? I'm bad. That's one thing. It is joyful. It's embodied. What else do you know about dance? The one thing you don't want to do. Yeah, you don't want to dance by yourself. <laughs> okay. That's good. So dancing is always with another. Yes, that's good. You have roles. Good. In my case, what do I do? Do you know anything about my dancing? My role is to follow, right? <laughs> I'm kidding, Betty. You want to come dance with me? Right now? Well, my wife is here. We don't have insurance for that. (laughs) Okay. So you have roles. It always involves another. Keep going. That, like when I say to Abby, don't step on my feet. You must listen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yes, some, yeah, there's a, there's a tune. Okay, Carol, tell us what you do. That's what Abby and I do at home. We just dance for the sake of dancing. I'm giving you a hard time. Yes, you can. Rolls, good. You have to listen. Sometimes you listen to your own tune. It always involves another. And always, uh, someone leads and someone follows. Ah, uh, Yeah. Yes, it involves. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Unless you're doing. True? Okay. Uh, it always involves. What did you just say, Mary? It was very helpful. Right. Yeah, There's <laughs> always Yes, right. That's what usually happens at weddings when I go, yeah. <laughs> Just stand like this. Hope Abby, you know. Okay. Yeah? Yep. What are those things called that was on Modern Family a couple weeks ago where they stop and everybody dances like in a park? What's that called? Flash Mob, right? Okay, good. See, I'm trying to relate to the people. Uh, move in tandem, good. Most literally, this would mean something like, um, what's that? Uh, sort of, um, to have coresis would be sort of a, uh, well, most literally, it would be sort of this inner, inner penetration of realities. It would be sort of the two become one. Does that make sense? Yeah, so moving, yeah, and reality moving in some sense around, but also together. So back and forth, most literally it would be sort of this interpenetration, which is in the Trinity, how do you know this happens? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all what? Persons, but they all share what? Essence. And their sharing of essence is perichoresis. That's right. Partly, it's how we define the terms. Um, to, To enter into this dance, you must be free. But remember, freedom does not equal license. How do you spell license? Does not equal license. And once you're in Christ, freedom does actually equal slavery, or not servitude, but servanthood. Um, yes, it is a choice. You can. The thing about being in Jesus is you can always decide not to be a slave, which is interesting because slavery in the world, you can't decide not to be a slave. Someone has to decide for you. So that is the difference. Freedom does not equal license, and that's oftentimes what happens is in the church. People think that because you're free, what does that mean? You have license to do whatever you'd like, which is not the case. In fact, in your freedom, you're intrinsically bound to someone. It'd be a very bad dance. That's exactly right. Okay? So all this is in the opening two or three verses here. Verse 3, so that you may have fellowship with us, which means fellowship in the church begins with whom? Not with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit but with the apostles. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay? Now, what does that look like? This is the message, verse 5. We have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, what's fascinating is just two or three days ago was the Feast of... um, No, that was yesterday. St. Polycarp was the day before. And if you know anything about uh, church history, you have St. John, who writes this book, St. Polycarp, and then after him, St. Irenaeus. And Irenaeus is a name you've heard. You've seen that in the bulletin before. There are all these stories about Irenaeus. As he was about to die, he would gather his students around, and he would talk about his, his stories. He would hear from Polycarp. And Polycarp would say, then the old Saint John would come in and we could see in his eyes that he was tired and we could hear in his voice that he had lived a long life. So there's this idea that stuff is passed on from age to age and it comes down through the apostles all the way to us. This is the message we have heard from him. John hears it from Jesus. Polycarp hears it from John. Irenaeus hears it from Polycarp. Someone hears it from Irenaeus. And it carries on all the way down to today. If we say we have koinonia with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have koinonia with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So you can't say, I have fellowship with Jesus. So if you walk in darkness, are you truly in fellowship with Christ? You can't be. You can't be. If we say, and it's interesting there that he says, if we say we have koinonia with Christ, while we walk in darkness, we lie. What do we lie about? Our fellowship with Christ and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have koinonia with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now that's, boy, I know why Pastor Brzezak took two weeks to get through seven verses. (laughs) Now, just look at John's play on words there. If we say we have fellowship with Jesus, this is unbelievable, actually. If we say we have fellowship with Jesus, and yet we walk in the darkness, what do we do? Yeah, so if you say you have fellowship with Christ... And you don't, and you walk in the darkness, you're lying. But then what does he say? But if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with, not with Christ. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, if you walk in the light, you have fellowship with Christ. He says, if you walk in the darkness, you don't have fellowship with Christ. If you walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And now you have to think back to Ephesians chapter 5. where St. Paul says, uh, he talks all about marriage, and he says, lo, I tell you a sacramentum, a sacrament. I am referring to Christ and the church. So if you have fellowship with one another, you actually have fellowship with Jesus. This is why when St. Paul gets converted on the Damascus Road, what what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, who was St. Paul really persecuting? He wasn't killing Jesus. He was persecuting the new church, which means he was killing Christians. But when Jesus encounters him, he says, why do you persecute me? Jesus and the church are one and the same. Why? Back to verse 3. If you have fellowship with us, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. You are indistinguishable. That's the point of the text. Okay? You are indistinguishable. You and Jesus... And you and one another are one and the same. Now, does that register as something odd to you? Yeah, Okay. so tell me why it seems odd, because it seems very odd to me. Keep going, tell me why. I don't know why it seems backwards, but I'm intrigued by the thought that it might be backwards. So keep going. Seems backwards, yeah. It seems back, yes, good. This is, yeah, so it seems backwards because how do people in Wheaton often talk about their relationship to the church or their relationship to salvation? I have a personal relationship with with Jesus, not I have a relationship with the church. So in some sense, and then you have other Christians who their relationship with the church defines their existence as Christians. For instance, many conservative old-time Roman Catholics How is their understanding of being a Christian defined? I have a relationship with Holy Mother, the Church, right? Biblically, which is more accurate? Probably the Roman position, right? You come to know the Church before you come to know Christ. So this is why apologetics today and how we bring people into the Church is so different than it used to be. In the age of modernism, so even 20 or 30 years ago, how would people come into the church? They would say, I don't believe in Jesus. And you'd say, well, here are 15 reasons you should believe in Jesus. And they'd say, okay, I believe in Jesus. Now I want to be a member of the church. Today, what happens? People couldn't give two know what for what kind of proof you can give for Jesus. They want to be part of a community, which is actually the biblical way. What, is, what does St. John say? You have fellowship with us, therefore your fellowship is with Jesus. Okay, yes, that's right, Um, that's right, so you may come to know the relationship by knowing the church, but that relationship really doesn't exist in its fullness until you've been forgiven by Jesus, exactly right, yeah, yes, it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's why James says, why are you biting and devouring one another? That wouldn't be the outward expression of your relationship with Jesus, hopefully. Exactly. And so how does this play out in real time? Think about this in the church. You hear, well, I'll just say what often gets said, which is, yeah, I know I've heard a lot of my brothers and sisters, but I've squared that up with Jesus. That's not squared up. No. Right? <clears throat> yes. Exactly right. So there are two sides to this coin, which is a relationship with Christ, which comes visibly in a relationship with the church. So you, so a Christian, and I, I mean this now, I'm going to s- sort of say um, these are very narrow terms, but a Christian really can't be a Christian unless he's part of the church. And this is why the church fathers would say there's no salvation outside the church. Yeah. You could say that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's the other, that's the other trouble, is that people can say, well, I go to church, but really they don't know Jesus. That's right. But remember, that's exactly right. And, and the, where it gets difficult, where that you have a better chance of having fellowship with Jesus by way of the church if you're a Catholic than if you're an evangelical in Wheaton who says, I know Jesus personally and I'm going to play golf on Sundays. Why? Because in the text, in Ephesians 5, Jesus is the church. Oh, I, I agree. There are a lot of Lutherans who don't think of it that way. The point is, Technically speaking, Jesus is the church. So if you know the church, you know Christ. Well, you can't distinguish between the church or Jesus. So if they're one and the same, uh, the church and Jesus come first. Exactly right. This That's is this is N. T. Wright, simply Christian beauty, community, spirituality, justice. That's the way in. Oftentimes, not always. Okay. But but the but the point that this is making is. I mean, I I hope you can understand how unbelievable this is. What he is saying is, you have communion. You have one fleshliness. You have a back and forthness with the entire Trinity. It's not you and sort of your spirituality going at this alone. This is you caught up in the same essence as God himself. And the back and forthness means you give to God something you don't need anymore, your sins. And what does God give you in return? His divine life. Being a Christian is not just about being forgiven. Forgiveness is the first word. Being a Christian is about being forgiven, but being caught up in the divine life of God himself. And this is what's oftentimes missed. I had a conversation, the vicar was there yesterday, with the person who said, well, once I'm baptized, I'm saved, and that's all that matters. No, that is the very first word. It's not the second word, the third word, or the last word. Those words are all about divine participation. You participate, you have koinonia, fellowship, with the divine nature of God. And this is why the church fathers, like Athanasius, can say, God became man that man might become God. Right. Salvation is a process, it takes a long time. And this is where, you know, very technically speaking, do Lutherans understand it correctly? Yeah, they do, which is God forgives you and God loves you and God saves you. But where they miss the point is that takes a lifetime to figure out. And in fact, even at your death, stuff still gets cleansed. You can't go to heaven as a sinner. You go to heaven as forgiven. But being forgiven, even at your death, could take. This is why Luther says death is your last great purgatory. So, I mean, think about that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you are. Uh, in a sense, you are. Yep. That's exactly right. That's where it all got started. But that wasn't the last word on the matter. Right. Yeah, salvation is not like a credit card. I've got it now, and I'm all, I'm all scored away. Salvation is a person who wants to be deeply joined to your own life. But guess what? This is where Luther was very right. Simul to et peccator. You're always a sinner, which means you're always pushing him away, which means he always needs to come back full blast, which means it's always a process. This is the back-and-forthness of life. You say I don't need you and he says yes but I need you. Right? No, but sometimes you got to open the present up and enjoy it a little bit. For some people it does. For some people it does. It. That's exactly right. Once again, I will bring it, No, I won't. <laughs> 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 I say once again, I will bring up the example of my mother-in-law giving me these kidding. Okay. Yes, you can while well, I get some coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Cause and it says, because, because it says, what does it say there right after it? If we say we have fellowship, but we do not want. practice the truth. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Your husband didn't underline that word. So I can't, <laughs> I can, I only know the words he's underlined. Verse six. Yeah, it does. It does actually remind you of James, which you wouldn't expect from John. (laughs) If you were picking, you would align John probably more with St. Paul than you would with James. But it does remind you of James because, you know, there's a difference between being forgiven and living forgiven. Being forgiven is the first word, but as the vicar said, living forgiven is sort of how you carry out the rest of your life. So if you say you have fellowship, which happens all the time, I believe in Jesus, I have fellowship with him, but do not practice the truth, then ultimately you're a liar. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, which means if you walk in Christ, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay. So here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is you're saved by how you live. And yet, as the Confessions say, I am saying good works are necessary. Why? Because how you live is a reflection of what gift you've been given. If you live like a damn sinner all the time, and this is me, too, what does it show to the world, and what does it show to the Father? You don't have the gift. So your living doesn't give you the gift. You're not reflecting Christ. Yeah, but your your living (laughs) reflects the gift you've been given. And and at some point, if you continue to say, I don't have the gift by how you live, what happens? The gift may disappear. It's when people say, I'm not this, I'm not that. I mean, eventually, if you say to your spouse, I'm not your husband, eventually, what happens? Desertion. Or, you know, on a district level, if you say over and over, I'm not a bishop, what eventually happens? You're not a bishop, (laughs) right? Yes. Oh, let me go right behind you real quick. Go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I'm going to be stunned when I get to heaven, as are you. We're all going to be. We're going to say, that guy is, whoa, he's above me. Because there are rankings in heaven. This is what St. Paul says. Yeah. Yes, right. I said that for you, Donna, because I could see you getting a little antsy over there. I love you. Yeah. Your life matters. That's what you can say. Right. And so if you're not if you're not living the life that Christ has called you to live, it there might be evidence that Christ isn't working in you all that much. And if Christ isn't working in you, like it says in the text, then you have to wonder, how much of Jesus do I really have? But yeah, just to say to someone. You're not living like a Christian, you're going to hell. That's not true. There are a lot of people that don't live like Christians that are going to go to heaven. But, you know, part of it is just realizing what kind of life you want. You can have a bare minimum life. But is that really a joyful? This gets back to her point about Cardinal Newman. Is that really a joy filled life? It won't be a bare minimum. That's right. At least you hope not. That's right. Okay, we all okay? Okay, verse, go ahead. Yeah, fellowship is koinonia, and fellowship in the in the scriptures is never used in an abstraction. So oftentimes people will say, "I have a relationship with Jesus." That's not koinonia, koinonia, yeah, or or just relationship in abstract. I can say I have a relationship with Barack Obama. Well, yeah, he's my pre, but I have no, I don't know him. I've never talked to him. I've never you know had a handshake. Koinonia in the text, in the scriptures, is always tangible. This is why St. Paul really is the first to employ it in that sense, which is, is not the bread that we break a koinonia in the body of Christ? A participation, a communion. And it always involves a tangible presence. Yeah, oftentimes the church will err on one of two sides. It will either become an amputee, it will cut people off, so the body is missing a foot, or it'll never set the bone properly and the body never heals properly. And so um, you don't just cut people off. Now, people can cut themselves off, which is very different, but the church doesn't usually just cut people off. At the same time, just to be forgiven doesn't necessarily set the bone properly. This was our whole discussion on Sunday morning about forgiveness and restitution, because so long as no restitution is made, that bone, while it may begin to heal, it may heal incorrectly. So partly, um, you're right, we need to be vulnerable and willing to be forgiven and forgive others and have communion again. At the same time, um, we need to realize that some people have cut themselves off for good, and there's not much you can do about that. And also along those lines, we have to realize that to be healed properly, we have to make restitution as well as other people have to make restitution. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing, what you presume in your statement, and I think it's a fair, pre- I think I think people often presume it, so I'm not saying it's just you. What you presume is everyone who's left has become an unbeliever. I'm not I know you're not. So here, it, it'd be different if everybody who left became truly a strayed sheep. They haven't strayed, they've just gone to a different communion. Different. Yeah, okay. I mean, they're not unbelievers, they just gone to Lombard. Let's be realistic. I mean, it's true. Okay. So, so we can say they've strayed and they're part of our – no, they're not part of our flock. They've chosen a different flock, and for whatever reason, that's where they've landed, and let's pray they're very ha- happy, but it's not our job to bring them back to this community. St. John Wheaton is not all that matters. Now let me ask you this. You think it's cosmic. Do people who left think it's cosmic? Or are they still concerned about what local church hurt them in whatever perceived way they think it happened? They're probably still thinking, that church hurt me. They don't see the church as cosmic. They see it as individual entities. They got upset with one, and they left and went to another. It's just not amazing. It's not, well, welcome to my world. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I deal with irreality all the time. Yes? Is this what you're describing as kind of like a bone that is not set properly? Exactly right. So here's here's the thing. Yeah, you would hope that we could be reconciled, be forgiven, and make restitution, and the bone would be set properly that doesn't mean people will come back to St John Wheaton. At the same time, you can't, you know, you can't sit around all day waiting for that to happen when in reality nobody has given us a good indication that that will happen. Yeah, but at the same time, let me say this, at the same time, you've got your own troubles. This is why Jesus says don't worry about yesterday and don't be anxious about tomorrow. Guess what? I mean, I'm going to be blunt cuz I'm sleep deprived and jet lagged. <laughs> If I haven't been blunt already, let me be blunt, you got your own congregation to worry about. And part of the trouble is, this is, like, this is like families whose kids decide to move away at 17 or 18 and say, I don't want to ever talk to you again. If you're always concerned about caring for that kid who left, guess what, you'll never care for your own kids. So you, Rebecca, and everybody else in the room, yeah, it'd be great if you could restore those relationships, but you have to remember a couple things. One, you didn't necessarily break the relationship, and two, Sometimes people set their face and do what they want to do, and it's never going to get fixed. Three, they're still saved, God willing. And four, you got your own congregation to worry about. Just like if they go every day to St. John Lombard and think about how mad they are at St. John Wheaton, if I was their pastor, I'd say get over it. So at some point, you got to move on. You have to. You can go along limping. I mean, you can live with a broken toe for a while, right? I don't. This has been freaking 24 months. I don't think we've been callous too quickly. And I don't. Mean, um, I, and I'm not going. I'm going hard at the whole idea. The you have you have you have one text in scripture where Jesus says go after the lost sheep. You have about five texts in scripture where Jesus says shake the dust off your feet and move on. So off, shake the dust off your feet and move on. So there's some point where it adds up that if you got to pick and choose. You always go after the lost sheep, but at some point you can't say that's Jesus' main priority in Scripture. That's not it. Yes. They're not lost. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, they're not. they're not. So partly we've got we're mixing we're mixing metaphors. Yeah, and and here's here's the part. Let me just be honest. You know why it hurts? Because you lost friends. You didn't hurt because people are going to hell. <laughs> you hurt because you lost your friends. Okay, and friendships, Lord willing, will be restored. But sometimes. Um, you know, leaving a community can forever break a friendship. And if your friendship matters more than your own congregation, your friendship has become an idol. And it can't. Yes. Yeah, well, let me just press the question. What is it you're praying for? What, I mean, what do you. Okay, good. Healing of what? Your relationship with them? Okay. Good. Yes, right? Good. Let me tell you how it works in my own life, and then you can figure out how it works in your life. In my own life, if I pray for people whom I I know have sinned against me, that can very quickly turn to pride. Because very quickly you can say, as Jesus says in the Gospels, or as the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like that man, right? Now, you don't always do that intentionally, but it just happens. I'm glad I'm not like, I'm glad I didn't do that. I'm glad I didn't say that, do that, think that, write that, whatever. So I find it very difficult at times to pray for your enemies, especially to pray for peace. Now, it's not because I don't want it for them. In fact, I desperately want it, but I know myself, know thyself, that's the greatest, you know, virtue. I know myself, and I know that if I pray for them too frequently with that intent, it will quickly turn to pride. And so for me, that doesn't work. What do I trust? I trust the liturgy that says, you know, for the peace of the whole world and the well-being of the church of God. That's it. Um, Or as we say in the prayer of the church, for the holy Christian church here on earth, that wraps up everything I could ever want to say. So for me, that doesn't work. And I think for some of you it's probably a similar thing, which is you can get so caught up in praying for your lost friends that it actually becomes an act of pride and not an act of mercy. Um, because at some point Jesus has to square that up and frankly, at some point your prayers don't matter as much as Jesus squaring that up. Is your grief? Is your grief? Yeah. Is your grief taken away or is it enhanced through your prayers? Uh, totally taken away. It's like that the is Good. Now that's very different than what you first asked, which was, how does this get healed? How do I need to expose myself? When you ask the question, you asked it in such a way as though you were struggling to get through it. Your your action should be as go to the Eucharist. Because that's koinonia. And here's the great thing about the Eucharist. You actually have fellowship with people that aren't here um, in a way that you could never have asked for. for It is. That's exactly right. And sometimes um, we're shining the light in the wrong location. A light needs to shine here, and they need to shine their light there. And if both lights are shining well, then maybe these two lights will shine together. Right? You hope so. Yes? And that's the thing. I mean, I think you make a good point. What, you, what you're saying is there is a time to grieve. But at some point, the grieving, you get, I don't want to say it stops because it never fully stops. But it's eased or transformed into action. So at some point, your grieving ceases to be, I can't get anything done because I'm grieving this loss. It transformed into I grieve the loss and therefore I work harder for that which I know is good. Yeah. Right? And it, it gives you your purpose. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's what has to happen in our own lives, but also in the church. We have to move on. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, you can't just say move on. It's move on with action towards something better. Mm-hmm. And, and there's joy in your work. Yes, that's exactly right. You're Right. <laughs> <laughs> really I agree. That's the way to take care of you. If you had to hold all, all yep. your books by yourself, trust you. I agree. And we're saying we love you, and we're walking in the Yeah, right. Sense. That's exactly. <laughs> I just don't have the strength. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. That's I'm right. grieving the loss. I love you, but I can't help you move your books. Yeah, exactly. Or face the room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're exactly right. So thank you for the plug. I have 52 boxes of books in the art room, Um, 52 to go to my office, and then like another 13 to go to the second level. If you're willing to help, tomorrow, 830? 830. 830, right here. I promise you, if you come at 830, we will be done in under 45 minutes. Wouldn't that be awesome? I think it'd be great. There are hundreds of boxes in that room. It'd be great if we got the whole room done in 30 minutes. So come if you can, okay? Don't want to create total chaos. No, you don't. That's right. <laughs> and it could be. Bad. It could be. Can we keep going? <laughs> Let's keep going. Verse eight. If we say we have no sin, and this is right out of the liturgy, or I should say the liturgy gets right the right yeah, here. exactly. This is like when one when one famous Lutheran theologian once said Jesus learned his doctrine of justification from Saint Paul. Uh, probably you want to not. say? I kid you not. <laughs> this is in this is in a doctrinal textbook of the Missouri Synod. You want to say? One, did Jesus ever really talk to St. Paul? And two, Only only on the road, and I don't think he was learning the doctrine of justification. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Two words there, faithful and just. Faithful is what? What does that mean if you're faithful? means you're not going to give up on somebody. Yeah. If you're a faithful it's spouse, good. you're going to stick with them through thick and thin. And what does just mean? It doesn't say mercy there. It says he's just. What does that Approved. mean? Say that again. Approved. Approved. Yeah, that's part of it. It means he's fair. It's, it's from Christ dying on the cross. Yeah, good. Then he can't, he can't do but us. That's right. Yeah, justice apart from Christ will destroy us, but justice infused by Christ is utter mercy, right? He's just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice it doesn't say he'll declare us righteous. It says he'll cleanse us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, that's interesting. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. (laughs) That's interesting. So it doesn't mean you lie. It means he's lied. And his logos, his word, his Christ, because remember in John, in the logos, you know, in the beginning was the logos. And the logos became flesh. And his logos is not in us. So if you have Christ, so now it's getting all sorted out. If you have koinonia, not only will you walk, in the light, but you also tell the truth, and I don't mean I don't mean tell the truth about others necessarily. I mean you'll tell the truth about others and about yourself. Okay. Oftentimes we're very happy to tell the truth about others. <laughs> we're not always that happy to tell the truth about ourselves. Sometimes we say that. And sometimes, yes. About a bit. And sometimes, yes. Yeah, sometimes we make it. What's that? Yes, you nailed it. Sometimes we say more than we need to say and not enough about our own selves. So we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we have koinonia with Christ, we tell the truth about others and about ourselves. Now, chapter 2. We've got about 15 minutes left. My little children, technon is the Greek word for child, and that could be sort of any age, but uh, technia is the Greek word for little child, and it's different than sort of baby. So we're talking... Like Maddox's age, right? It's a little older than an infant, but not quite old enough to walk and talk and do stuff on his own. So think about that when John talks to you here. My little children, my nine month olds, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, as as Lutherans, what do we presuppose? We're going. Right? I mean, this is, this is interesting how we always, we always have the wrong presupposition, or we, we write things to protect ourselves from others. So, for instance, we're talking about writing a new constitution. You know what I was most stunned by in our old constitution was that it was written to what? Protect a parish against a bad pastor. It's not, it's not life insurance. It's not like if we need this, we've got it. No, you write a constitution to enable people to do their best. Same thing here. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He doesn't say, ah, little children, I know you're going to sin. But when you do, he says, don't sin like John 8, the woman at the well. Go and sin no more. But if anyone does sin, he makes it sound like it's an exception. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He doesn't say the righteous one. Jesus, the righteous. He is righteous. He is righteousness. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Isn't that fascinating? Mm -hmm. So you're not not special in Jesus' eyes. You are, because you're baptized, but in some sense you're not. You're no different than everybody else who's ever lived. Jesus died for everyone. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say here as Lutherans often do, by this the world will know that we've come to know him. By this, we will know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, that's Exodus 20, the words of God, debar, not commandments, in him truly the love of God is perfected, that's interesting. Hold on, verse five. Truly, the love of God is to telestie. It is finished. Truly, the love of God is finished. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, to And here it says truly the agape of God, the love of God, is finished. It's complete. By this we may, may be sure that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So you take your example from Christ. You don't just say, I need to walk as a Christian. You walk as Jesus walked. The new commandment, verse 7. Behold, you do. Behold, I am writing you no new commandment. I am not writing I am writing, yeah, I'm not writing you a new commandment, or I'm writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Okay? That you had from the beginning. Now, what's the beginning there he's talking about? Not Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. What's he talking about? Back to creation. Yeah. RK. Back to the beginning. Yeah, exactly. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Let there be light. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And already you begin to see why John wrote this letter. This wasn't a letter just to be read to folks. This, As, as with most epistles, this was a letter to be read when? As a sermon. What service do you think he's preaching this at? Pick a, Yes, the baptismal service, which happened once a year when? The Easter Vigil. You remember the language of the Easter Vigil? It's all about darkness and light, right? Um, as the uh, as the great exalted says, um, I, I've now forgotten what the great exalted says, because <laughs> I was up at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> the great exalted says something about darkness and light. Um Boy, that's bad. (laughs) The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. That has a double meaning. One, it's spiritual. But two, it's literal. Why? At the Easter vigil, it happens at night, and it's moving into the morning. The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. you know that's when we should think about as we think about people we've lost whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes st paul and that's why you got to compare that with jesus who says two things i am the way the truth and the life and he also says you know the way to to the kingdom is narrow If you're blind, you can't find the way. Now, he uses three different terms here, coming up in 12 through 14, and I would propose to you that these three terms mean that St. John knew the ancient catechumenate. I am writing to you little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, he uses three things there. Little children, fathers, and young men. Let's do the easy ones first. Fathers, think about the church. Who is the father of the church? The priest, the bishop. Who are the young men? Think about the catechumenate. If you've served in the catechumenate and you're not a catechumen, what might you be? A sponsor, right? You've been through this before, but you're not quite all the way there. And little children are the catechumens. So Now, think about this. I'm writing to you new members because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you pastors, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you sponsors, to members already, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children, because you know the Father, capital F, the Father in heaven. I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you members, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This whole thing, this is a sermon for the Easter Vigil. This is a sermon right before baptism. This is a sermon he's preaching to people about to become members, people who have just become members, and to the pastors who are sitting there present. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. This doesn't mean you can't enjoy them. It just means you don't love them. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions, desires of flesh, desires of eyes, and, des- and pride in possessions, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay? So everything in the world passes away. What doesn't pass away? God, the Father, the Father, his Son and His Spirit and the place where they abide. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So you see here at the Easter Vigil and then in every divine service, it transcends time. That's why we're caught up with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Or as you know, as, as one of the popes has said, death does not separate us from the communion of saints. The entire church is joined together wherever Christ is present with His body and His blood. There is no, you know. There's no distinction in place. There's no distinction in time. Everything comes together at the altar, and that's what St. John is telling his people to do. Why? They're about to be baptized, and what's the very next thing they will do? They will go to the Eucharist for the very first time. Whoever abides in me abides forever. Okay? You have questions so far? I don't want to keep going too far because we only got five minutes left, and we've done a lot already. I mean, Brusick did seven verses, and we've done a chapter <laughs> and a half. <laughs> Do you have questions about all that? I mean, what's your takeaway? If you have to say, here's my one or two takeaways from this, what would it be? Back, yeah, sure. Uh, and and it would be. Um, I, would, I would compare it, um, instead of the battle between flesh and spirit, I would compare it to what we talked about at the very beginning, the perichoresis that occurs in the Trinity or the perichoresis that occurs in Christ, or the perichoresis between you and Christ. So you have this, this, here's you, and you have this sort of back and forthness between darkness and light. In some sense, those two things dance within you. But um, as it was with Christ, you remember the incarnation, he came down and he had a human nature and a divine nature. Those two things danced very well together. But as it says um, in Philippians, um, what does it say in Philippians? (laughs) (laughs) The The Greek word is kenosis. He emptied himself and made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. So within Christ, so this is you, and this is Christ. Here he is. Within Christ, in Mary's belly, you have divine and you have human. What does he do with his divine nature? Yeah, he, he gives it up for a time. He empties himself. Kenosis. What do you do with your darkness? Give it up. Empty yourself. But as you know, if you give something up, it has to go somewhere. Where does his divine nature go? Into you. Where does your darkness go? Into Jesus. So there is this back and forthness between darkness and light. But because it's a process and because the light begins to shine, there will be a day. This is why we sing at the today service during Lent. Our darkness is not darkness to you. When Christ sees the world, what does he see? He sees light. So you give up your darkness and light becomes everything. Christ gives up His divine nature and that becomes everything for you. This is what Luther calls the great exchange. You give Luther all you, Luther. You give Jesus all your darkness and Jesus gives you all His light, all His divinity. I forgive you. Love you. And this is and the point and this is what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. The point is, being assertive does not equal being ordered. Christ wants an ordered life, but he doesn't want a domineering sort of life. Even Jesus himself, he lives a very ordered life. His own body is eaten. But what does he do? He gives up everything that could be assertive in life. If Jesus, this is why Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, if I wanted to send down legions of angels, I could. That would be dominating. But what does he do? He empties himself, becomes nothing, and allows himself to be handled. 1 John chapter 1. That which we've seen, heard, touched, that's wh- that which we've handled. Right? And so he gives up all assertiveness in himself to become a servant for you. But that doesn't mean he's chaotic. See, oftentimes what happens is we say, I'm going to give up being assertive, we meaning everybody in the room, and what happens? Our life is chaos. You have to give up assertiveness, but live an ordered life, which means who replaces the assertiveness? Christ and his divine nature. And I'll tell you, this is a very, I mean, Lutherans will say, this doesn't happen. I had a circuit meeting with all these pastors, And the pastor went after me because I said, you received the divine nature of Jesus. He said, that's absolutely not true. It's in the text. It has to be in the text. And this is a very Lutheran thing to think this way, that Christ gives you all of himself, his body, his blood, his soul, and his divinity, all of Christ. We're not just cannibals. but We're also not reformed. It's not just bread and wine. It's a full blast Jesus. Whatever he assumed in Mary's flesh, he gives to you at the Eucharist. I'm going to go to Holly, then I'll go to Jan, and then I'll go to Donna. And then we'll be done. Yeah? Force, right. Yep. Yeah. Power is not, I don't think power actually appears in the gospel. I mean, it may, but it's used negatively. Exousia, authority, appears all over the place. And that's always, Jesus says to the disciples, I give you authority, but it's for the good. Yes, Jan. Oh, yeah. The word he used there is logos. Yes. That's exactly right. Yep. That's good. Well, and that gives you, here's the thing, that gives you a lot to be hopeful for because here's the thing, the Father will never destroy his son, and if the word abides in you, the Father will never destroy you. He can't. He can't. Okay? All right, thank you. Um, Like I said, 8.30 tomorrow, if you're able and willing. You know, there are going to be heavy boxes, so don't hurt yourself, but um, if you can do it, that'd be great. All right? Let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven